join us as we take a look behind the scenes with the independent musicians of Louisiana. Learn about upcoming projects before they drop. Experience the rich heritage of iconic venues and get first-hand accounts of exclusive events. Musicians are remarkable people. Get to know them, their struggles, and the inspiration for their art. NewOrleansMusicians.com is dedicated to uplifting the artists and providing them with the tools necessary to elevate their craft. We shine a spotlight on them, as well as highlight the music scene and educate everyone with our interviews, album reviews, and music scene news. This is NewOrleansMusicians.com. After a career in boxing, your father, Jimmy Anselmo Sr., opened the Little Blue Room and Mardi Gras Lounge on Bourbon Street back in the 30s. Uh, How much of all of that did you get to see growing up? Well, it was the first place I didn't get a chance to see. I have photographs of it. It was called the Little Blue Room. Mm -hmm. That was across the street from Arnold's Restaurant in the Quarter. So after that time there, he bought a building on Bourbon Street, which was the Mardi Gras, called the Jimmy King's Mardi Gras Lounge. It was Mm -hmm. a three-story building. In my recollection of uh, entertainment there, of course, I was five years old. I couldn't go there at night, whatever. But during the daytime, I would play around on the bandstand and get the drums, play with that. I remember my dad say, if that drummer sees you up there, he'll kick your ass, boy. You know what I mean? <laughs> get out of there. So that's my recollection of the Mardi Gras Lounge. And also, uh, he had an apartment above the club on Bourbon Street and standing out there and remember watching the people on Bourbon Street. And then after that, he had a a club, uh, an African-American club called the Big Hat Lounge. Mm -hmm. It was across from the old bus station on Canal by Canal Street. Okay. And he had uh, a big bandstand in there. And I wish I knew, maybe I can try to find every night on the computer who played there. But I understand some pretty big people who Mm -hmm. played there. And then later he had a restaurant on Bourbon Street called King's Barbecue, and I used to work there as a delivery boy. Okay. I liked that. I was 14, 15 years old because I'd get to go into strip clubs. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice. And I would boast about it all my friends in school and sure. tell them about what I saw. Yeah. Give me a job at your dad's restaurant. You know? Yeah. No, that's the oldest son. And uh, that's where I first Mac, met Mac Rebenack. Okay. At one of the, because before the strip show would start, they'd have him with his band entertaining people there and mm-hmm. i met him there yeah i was going to ask as a child how much interaction you were able to have with the musicians you know well quite a bit of because my dad you know my dad was like the king of bourbon street everybody knew my dad you know all the club owners and he would the little boy take me in the famous door you know i'd see some of the bands playing there dixieland bands uh uh, Sharky Banana and his band, another band called George Deride, the Dukes of Dixieland, and uh, and uh, a lot of those clubs out, out there would take me in, you know, not late at night, but the early part of the night. And there was also a club on Wall Street, not a club, but it was like a somewhat of a dance hall. It was called Tony Amarica's Parisian Room. And every Sunday they had all kinds of bands that would play there, you know, and I'd go there and then. Uh, and then as a, you know, as a young boy, I would go to uh, a lot of the, uh, the uh, teenage dances they'd have, you know, mm-hmm. and they'd have a lot of the band. Matter of fact, Mac Rebenack used to play in a lot of these uh, 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 places like Sacred Heart Dance, Germania Hall, all these okay. other places. You heard of those yeah. before, you know, 
And I, because I, I had, my dad bought me a car when I was 15. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky I can get around with a car. Sure. You know, wasn't a new car, but Pride said I always wanted a motor scooter. And he said, over my dead body, <laughs> get a motor scooter, he bought me a car. Yeah. So I kind of, at that age, you know, I had a fake ID and I'd, I'd go see Irma Thomas. She played at a club not too far from here on Gentilly Boulevard called the uh, Dreamland or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I'd kind of get around the city to see a lot of entertainment. That's cool. Mm -hmm. um, you had graduated from Francis T. Nichols High School in 63. 63. Mm -hmm. And by 66, you've toured with the Navy, you're married, and you own a bar. And well, I, I'm reading that, I just thought, man, okay, he grew I, up pretty I quick. I went to the Navy. I joined the Navy Reserve when I was a junior in high school. And my commitment was two years active, four years reserve. So after graduation, uh, went, I went on active duty and I was stationed aboard an aircraft carrier called the USS Saratoga. Mm -hmm. And I worked on the flight deck moving aircraft around. So after the Navy, I got out in uh, uh, kind of late 65. My brother-in-law had a club on Bourbon Street called Papa Joe's. Mm -hmm. And I worked the jam session there. That was your brother-in-law, you said? Yeah, Bobby Blanchett was his name. You okay. know, my, my sister, they owned that place. And the band it was a hell of a band. The band consisted of Freddie Fender on bass, Little Joe Lambert on drums, Joey Long on guitar, and uh, Skip Easterlin on the B3 organ. Mm -hmm. So I, I worked there as a bartender, and I made great money. I was making two or three hundred dollars a night. Nice. Got my first apartment, bought a car, you know. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, then after that, I met my wife. I got married in 67, and I had my first club called Coeds. Right. It was uptown. I had an uncle that had an amusement business, and he financed it. I bought it for like $13,000. So I was there uh, from 67 till about 72, and I was anxious to have some other clubs. So I, I, it was an empty space a block away. So. I built another club called Quasimodo's mm -hmm. in 1972. So I had two, two nightclubs going, and I was doing pretty well with that, but they weren't big clubs, they were small clubs. And uh, so I had this desire, I had ambitions for you know a bigger place. And sure. I started seeing a few music clubs opening up, and I wanted to op open up a music club because I loved music. So in, uh, used to be, it was an old pool hall on Willow, which later became Jimmy's. And the owner of the place, it was called Al Pellegrini's Pool Hall. Mm -hmm. He used to stop in Quasimodo's every now and then. And he says, you ought to buy this, you know, club from me. I got it. I'm going to sell it pretty soon. Now, well, the um, the co-eds and Quasimodo's, were those basically turnkey? Uh what do you mean turnkey? Uh, they were in operation and didn't need much to continue to operate. Oh, yeah, you're right. It was turnkey operation. I didn't have to renovate anything. You know, right. it was turnkey. Uh, so, but you know, they were small, and I was limited what I can do. I was successful there, but not the kind of success I would have at Jimmy's, mm -hmm. because you know, capacity might be a hundred people at each place. So, uh, at I was getting anxious. I wanted to move on, uh, and I told myself. Uh, where are you going to be in the next five years? You know, I was in my late 20s. Do you want to be stuck in a little small club? Do you want to make a move? And so I made to move the move to uh, Al Pellegrini's pool hall. Mm -hmm. So I bought the pool hall uh, 
for $12,000. And I signed the long-term lease, mm -hmm. reasonable rent, you know. And uh, so I knew I wasn't going to be operator of a pool hall. He only had a bunch of junkies from the methadone clinic used to, <laughs> used, used okay. to hang there. And it was in a pool hall. I, you know, I had ambitions of a music club. So I, about two weeks after that, I closed it down, and I sold my other place, both of them, and I had enough money to do some of the renovation of the property. It was an old building from, like, 1915. Well, I read so, that was a long, like, what, a two-year renovation Yeah, process? almost that. So we sandblasted things and everything. So in the meantime, I was living off that money and spending the money to do some of the renovation. That's when I started uh, uh, looking for financing. To, uh, to open Jimmy's. Okay, mm -hmm. so I went to uh, went to the banks. Three of them turned me down. And then I seek the Small Business Administration. So uh, I went to them, and uh, they hire a, a caseworker to put together your portfolio to present to them. You know, for for the financing. And I guess maybe it helped that I was a veteran in the Navy and things like that. So sure. uh, uh, I was requesting, I don't know what it was, it was like about $85,000, okay? Because I was going to have a grill in the club, too. I haven't decided on a name yet. Mm -hmm. One name that stuck with it was calling it the Depot because it was across the street from the streetcar station. Right. So, uh, uh, so I went to them and had many meetings with them. And then uh, my caseworker, I still remember his name. His name was Julius Smoke. He, uh, he called me up and says they declined the loan. So I said, uh oh, look for a job, Jimmy. <laughs> yeah. So he says, but what I can do is I could resubmit it at a lower price. Could you do all this work that you'd like to do, you know, to open up at 65000 I said, yes. So that's when I decided I wasn't going to have a grill. Uh -huh. That would have cost you know about twenty thousand for the grill and everything. So, yeah. so uh, what, what they do is they don't give you sixty five thousand dollars. You have to have contractors that are insured, and they pay the contractors. So I had my electricians lined up, my plumbers and uh, carpenters and all that to do the work. So. Mm -hmm. uh, we went in there. Matter of fact, I have a lot of photographs. I'd be glad to show you the Great. work we did. Yeah. You know? So we started the work on the renovation. So the uh, after completion, I was able to open on April eighth, nineteen seventy eight. Mm -hmm. And my first weekend, uh, I had Little Queenie and the Percolators. Second night, I had the Neville Brothers. Beautiful. Packed the club. Yeah. Okay. And then the following week. I lost my profits in the first week. I had a jazz act yeah. <laughs> called Sonny Stitt, a famous saxophone player. Uh -huh. And the reason why I booked that because I had some uh, people from Loyola, some teachers from Loyola. They were in charge of the school band right there. They were up on all the progressive jazz bands, and they talked me into booking that. And it was a big mistake. So mm. I, I lost the money. <laughs> That's a a lesson <laughs> so, learned. Huh? A lesson learned. So a lot of the shows that I did back in the beginning was they I did door deals because I didn't have money for the guarantees. And another story I like to tell you also is my mother. Uh, for me to get the loan, I had to show like fifteen thousand that I had in the bank. Mm -hmm. So my mother borrowed fifteen thousand so I can show the SBA that I had that. 
gotcha. one other thing my mother helped me. The day I opened Jimmy's, I didn't have any money. She lent me the money to put in the cash registers for the bank. Nice. <laughs> it was that close, huh? It was that close. So yeah. I uh, so I started getting a lot of these new wave bands. They were willing to do it for the door, you know, bands like the Normals, Lenny Zenith, and then uh, I didn't I didn't seek out any national acts. I didn't really have the money to pay because these national acts you have to send them half the money in advance. Uh -huh. And my first national act was Asleep at the Wheel, mm -hmm. and they're Everybody talked them up that they do really well, and uh, I did really well with them. I was able to book them without sending in a deposit. They kept asking, where's the deposit? <laughs> so I made it's it in the mail. It's in the mail. It's in the mail. Yeah, so I was, um, <laughs> I was kind of riding the skin of my uh, butt, whatever, okay? So that paid off really well, and then once I started saving a little money up, I could start booking some bigger names. Yeah. And, in the business but I was very careful how I did that because you know I didn't have a lot of money you know mm -hmm. and uh, and and also I lived real close to the club to be on top of things uh, when I first opened I had an apartment that was about three doors down mm -hmm. and uh, I would use that for a dressing room for some of the big bands you know like the Neville Brothers the Sheiks and everything and sure another national act I had was uh, uh, Muddy Waters, mm -hmm. and I used that for the dressing room there. So uh, my lease was running out that apartment. I was looking around for uh, apartment close by because I, I, I was. It was important for me to be on top of things. So a friend of mine said his dad had a trailer across the lake. He said, "Let's put a trailer in back of the club, and you can live in the trailer." Mm -hmm. I said, "That's a great idea." Yeah, and I saved a lot of money by doing that. And I uh, hooked up the electricity from the club. I ran a plumbing line to the trailer. And, mm -hmm. and I lived in the trailer for about a year. Yeah. And I used that, let the bands use that for a dressing room also. And sure. Then, uh, but it wasn't legal to have a trailer in New Orleans in the back of a club. Right. By any means necessary, though, so right? So code, code enforcement came by, and they said, you got to move it. They gave me $30, 30 days to move yeah. it. So uh, uh, I sold it and moved it out. And then I found another apartment close by. But you got to do that for a year before they came by and said something about yes, it. Yes, yes, right. <laughs> so it was. It was very convenient. And I was saving a lot of money by doing that. Sure. So, uh, and then there was a lot of competition I had to compete with, and uh, uh, I managed to do pretty good, you know, because I was very wise with my money how I handled things. Yeah. You know, a lot of these national acts, if I, if I didn't, I would negotiate to make sure it's, it was reasonable that I can afford to do them, you know, because they'd always ask for this much and then we come come down to this. Gotcha. So, uh, and then whenever I had any leverage, I would use that. At one time, Tipitina's had closed. This is back, I think, maybe in the 84, 85, you know what I mean? So I was like the only major music club around the city. And one of the episodes I remember was, uh, Greg Allman wanted to play the club, doing New Year's New Year's time, okay, and, uh, and he was asking something like fourteen thousand dollars, and I told the agent, I said, well, I don't, I said I don't give guarantees. <laughs> said mm -hmm. this is Greg Allman. I said I know, but you know, I'll be glad to have him play for the door. <laughs> yeah. This is Greg Allman. I said no, that's all I can do. So a couple of days later, they. Uh, called me back and said, okay, we'll do it for the door 100%. I 
I said, no, no, I can't do it for 100%. I have to pay production costs, uh, security, uh, sound equipment, mm -hmm. and all that, so I'll do it for 80%. So they agreed on doing it. They played the club. He made 15000 and we rang up 15000 Nice. So it worked out good. And he had approached you to do the show? Yes. Well, his agents approached me. Oh, okay. So I was like only the major club around. Sure. The time. Yeah. Wow. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey, what's up, everybody? Normally, podcasts use this slot to advertise and pay the bills, but uh, NewOrleansMusicians.com uses it to showcase some of their newest members. Uh, today, we got for you uh, Sandra Love and the Reason. Uh, she's originally from uh, Baltimore, Maryland, and Richmond, Virginia, and they all now live down here in New Orleans. They're a funky blues rock band with a little bit of soul mixed in there, and uh, their inspirations are Charles Bradley, who I love, Groove Theory, and Sharon Jones. Uh, when asked uh, what single factor played the biggest role in her decision to pursue a career in music, uh, she mentioned her dad. He gave music up to be a Jehovah's Witness, and so did uh, his father. So she decided to take a different path, and we applaud her for that. Uh, she's performed in 42 states. Uh, she toured with the Dirty Bourbon River Show, uh, outstanding brass act. Uh, last album published was uh, Dreamwalker in April of 22. Now, I did find Sandra Love and the Reason on YouTube, and uh, apparently they've been on NPR's Tiny Desk twice. Also saw them on Spotify, and uh, one of the songs is up to 3,500 plays, so congratulations to Sandra Love and the Reason for that. Uh, you can find them on NewOrleansMusicians.com. And here's a little clip of some of their work. back to our show um in the beginning you hadn't had experience with booking music acts or running a club that was mainly a a, a music venue um what was the draw was it just that you've just felt like that was a way to expand commerce in general i wanted to do that first of all i love music and okay and that's mm. what i wanted okay i wanted to a successful music club and by by uh, and I, I learned and I wanted to learn everything a lot of these clubs they might have hired somebody that was a booking specialist sure I booked everything because I wanted to learn how to do it right and uh, you know and I used to be a bartender too so if I had to I'd be the bartender which some nights I was in the beginning mm -hmm. uh, I used to have James Booker play every Wednesday night it was James Booker I put a piano close to the bar that way I could black out the rest of the club. It was a pretty big club. And uh, it was a booker night, and I was a bartender. Mm. So in case I had to fire a bartender, I can go back there and take over. Sure. 
but it helps uh, to know the business. Yeah, right. And I was, it was, I was uh, experience I learned on the run. Okay, I don't know how to book everything. I got pretty good at it. You know, I could have got a job booking entertainment if I wanted to. Sure. Because I felt like if I was going to roll the dice, I'm going to make the shot, the call. And then, uh, and also a lot of things I realized as, you know, <clears throat> things I didn't need. Okay. First of all, I didn't need a huge stock of liquors. You know, because mm -hmm. it's not a regular bar. People are coming here for the entertainment. You know, I'd have your major brands, you know, like uh, Stolish Nair, you know what I mean, in a bar vodka, but I wouldn't have a big selection of vodka or bourbons and all that. I didn't need all of that. Uh -huh. If people didn't have it, they'll buy, they'll drink something else. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, I didn't take credit cards. I had an ATM machine there because that slowed us down. Uh, I wanted to be fast and efficient. I had fast bartenders, you know, and uh, uh, that would slow us down. And also, big nights, I didn't need tables and chairs. I could fit more people without tables and chairs. Sure. I'd um, put them out in the back of the club. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, did you become more personally vested in it as time went on? And I'm not saying that from a business aspect, but... In the beginning, you're looking to expand your business. You like music, so it makes sense to open up a venue. But in essence, you're expanding your business. And um, throughout the years, you start getting better at booking acts and um, getting more uh, national acts yes, to the club. Right. right. Um, did it kind of fuel the fire? To I mean, were you really? You must have been the fire to thrilled to get more big bands. Sure, there. of course it did. You yeah. know, and not only that, I built up a reputation for a good venue to play at. You know, it made it easy for me because I didn't have to call them; they'd call me. Right. You said uh, Greg yeah. Allman called you. Well, yeah, his, and all these top agents. Called you. you know what I mean? That I dealt with. I had people like Huey Lewis in the news, Monterey Peninsula. So all the major agents handling all the the music business mm -hmm. knew who I was yeah they contacted me man that must have been fantastic yeah. <laughs> it was yeah um you had uh professor longhair perform there back in 79 yes um and I'd read he had a style unto his own in every aspect not just playing just his personality his vernacular right. everything um do you did you get a chance to spend some time with him a, a little bit of time with him you know not not a whole lot but uh, he had a nice personality. It was nice to deal with. Yeah. So he is—he's uh, in that book I gave you a copy of because oh, he was. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely, Doctor John. Doctor John was kind of his I'm, protege. I'm good friends with his daughter. His daughter has—she doesn't like to call it a museum. She calls it uh, memories. Professor Longhair House of Memories. Yeah. And I've been. She has events over there. I, I'm, we celebrated Doctor John's birthday one year there. Wow. And that was fun. We had Ricky Lee Jones was there. Yeah. Some of the uh, Neville brothers, Deacon John. You know, it was like about 20, 30 people, top names in the business. They were all there. Sure. And uh, it was very intimate and nice. Yeah. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. He was coming next. I was going to mention Dr. John because he was um, Professor Longhair's protege. Um, I saw that Dr. John had played uh, Jimmy's in 80, I think, 1980. Right. Um, by that time, he was 25 years into his career, so I mean, he right. was really starting to right. become a big name artist. Uh, do you recall how that night went? It was, you know, <laughs> quite successful. But he was one of the people that I targeted, simply because I, 
I love this music. His music was kind of like I look at it now as the soundtrack of my life. Okay. Sure. His music. Loved his music, and he's one of the people that I really wanted in Jimmy's, and I didn't overpay him, but yet I paid him enough where we made money off the show. Mm -hmm. And they, he played a few times. I remember some of the things I had to do when he played there. I had to get someone to drive him around like a limo. Not a limo. I just rented a Cadillac. And had a friend of mine, Jerry Brock. He, uh, in fact, he's the guy that created WWZ Radio, mm -hmm. and he'd do a little part-time work like that. So I had him as the chauffeur for Dr. John. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, I keep mentioning the book. I, I really enjoyed it so much. But in this this uh, biography uh, of Mac Rabinac under a hoodoo moon. Um, it describes a breakdown in the ecosystem that existed between the city and live music venues in the 70s. Apparently there was some friction caused by the DA's office and um, it started kind of manifesting itself by breaking down the relationships that these venues had with the uh, people that sustained them. Um, not, not just the crowd, but uh, people working the street and, and people in their, in their area. Um, have there been times in your career where laws or ordinances made doing business difficult for you? So there were there were there was things that that happened. I remember uh, I I would hire New Orleans police on big nights to work details. Okay, mm -hmm. and then uh, I I never had really much trouble. Maybe that helped keep the trouble off. I mean. Uh, and then I think they had a new police chief came around and he stopped that and he said, no, we don't want that. They cannot play uh, ABOs, alcoholic beverage outlets, okay, because it might corrupt them. Okay. And I thought that was stupid. I, I mean, why would I hire, if I was doing something illegal as a club owner, sure. or drugs or something, why would I hire a policeman? Yeah. You can see all of that. That's a good so, point. And, it, and I had to hire other security. It didn't work out as well. There was a couple incidents, but you know I don't want to really talk about that. Sure. Know? Yeah. For the most part, it was uh, amicable. And, mm, sometimes they would give me a rough time because of sound. Mm -hmm. you know, it might be too loud. Sound ordinance. And, uh, <coughs> and, uh, and of course, uh, I didn't like it when they changed the drinking age from 18 to 21. I remember that. Yeah, that made it really difficult, and I've always been opposed to that. And I was with a group of club owners that were lobbying against that. You know, we always said, if you're old enough to die for your country, you're old enough to have a beer. That's right. You know, it was horrible. You know, so yeah. we had to be really strict about it. And it kind of cut into my business a little bit. You sure. Know? So I didn't you made the best of it. Like it huh? yeah. yeah. What I didn't like about it just gave, if the police wanted to, they could probably bust any club at the time, maybe having somebody that wasn't one. Sure. You know? That wasn't easy. No, it wasn't easy. So. Yeah. Um, I've noticed uh, you and I were talking about set list. Um, where you could find right. the uh, the show bills over the years, and um, I know you had uh, punk bands like the Misfits and the Dick Nixons, um, but in the early '90s, your club began seeing a heavier side of metal: uh, Nine Inch Nails, Anthrax, Testament, Superjoint, Ritual. Yeah, um, I was wondering what prompted that. Was you just, were you just following the pulse at the time? I just wanted to be a club for doing every genre of music. Yeah, you know, which I was. Did reggae? I got real popular for reggae, and I wanted to, I wanted to do it all. And I did some hip hop, but I, I, I 
I stopped it because it was a little bit of violence involved in that. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, but I, I did it all except jazz. That didn't sell. It didn't sell too well. <laughs> so that was never well. again after that. You didn't no, do it anymore. No, no, no. Unless I knew they were going to draw a big crowd and the price was right. But sure. jazz doesn't draw. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it does. This was. Um, were these uh, shows strictly on the weekends? How were you booking? No, my booking was. Uh, sometimes I might be open three nights a week, four nights a week, or whatever the you know when I had a good booking. Yeah. And if I didn't have a booking, I would uh, I would close. Close down. You know. Right. Right. Takes that care of it, That made it simple. Why open? You don't have anything to open with. I'm a. I'm a I'm a music venue, music not a venue. bar. Yeah, you know that's right. So, a quick story to tell you on that because you know being popular, all the new bands, the local bands would all want to play there. Mm -hmm. And they'd call, and I give them my little speech about you have to have a following. The first thing I would ask is how big is your following? And because I would I would have a test time on the weekdays for the band, you know, a night that I didn't have anything else, you know, Tuesday maybe a Wednesday. And uh, uh, and I'd specify that, you know. And also, I had a, a test time. By that, you mean uh, they would come out and do a show in the middle of the week to see how it went? To see how it went, exactly. And I would emphasize you got to have a follow-on. Of course, they'd lie to you, you know. <laughs> of course. <laughs> they'd come in there, and I had a routine where I, I always lived close by five minutes away, and I'd tell my bartender, if you get slammed, give me a call. And lots, a few times they got slammed, you know. One of the bands was Metal Rose, okay? Mm -hmm. they, they played there, and they drew 300 people on the test Wednesday. So then I would move them up for a weekend, and that would be like, you know, maybe a weekend band. Yeah. But other bands would, you know, I'd, I'd ask them. And they'd always tell me this. I'd say, well, where's your following you said you had? They said, well... Well, when does your crowd get here? <laughs> and I'd go, no, I don't have a crowd. That's why I booked you. Right. If, I had a, if I had a crowd, I wouldn't need a band. Exactly. Yeah, Jukebox so, would suffice, right? Of course, they wanted to get in, the, you know, so. Yeah. And that happened. For the, um, for the out-of-town acts, the national acts that you would have come and play, um, and I didn't know how to word this exactly, but were you able to kind of show them some Southern hospitality or give them a feel of what the city was about yeah, in a I'd short always time try, Yeah, exactly. I'd always try to like uh, have a nice uh, welcome to get them to like me, get them to like the club and where they felt really comfortable. They have several, <clears throat> several groups I'd have maybe a little party for, or a nice meal for, or, uh, 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 fabulous Thunderbirds, you know. I'd have a nice little meal at my apartment that for them. They'd come over there and eat during the daytime. Uh, another band, Muddy Waters. I had a friend of mine uh, cook them some New Orleans style food, you know, uh, shrimp etouffee and gumbo and all that, and they loved it. Sure. And uh, and the other ones, you know, uh, they'd have a buyout or a, a list of things that you had to provide them with, you know. Okay. And uh, but I think with some of the stories, I remember uh, David Allen Coe. You heard of him? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he'd play there, and. Uh, one of the times, a couple of ladies that were big fans, you know, they asked if they could, you know, <clears throat> do cookings, cook some New Orleans style food, uh, you know, for the band and all, you know, instead of me getting something maybe to go, whatever. So, yeah, and what a character he was. So, they had some kind of rice dishes and good food. So, Alan Toussaint, and that, I'm saying, uh, 
David Allen Coe comes by and he looks at the food. He said, man, I don't eat that gook food. <laughs> what? <laughs> he says, I want some prison food. Because he was in prison. Yeah. You know? I want some prison food. Okay, so there was a little drugstore that had like Salisbury steak and gravy. I brought him over there to eat. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> yeah, wow. He said, I don't eat that gook food. The band ate it. They loved it. Whatever know? works, huh? Whatever works, you know. That's so funny. Yeah. Hey, this is Levi from Mistlayer, Southern Brutality in 1016. Look, man, we all start off as jam bands. We get together, we push our souls all throughout the speakers, man. Simple as that. The connections that we form with our crowds and followers are nothing like any other. We'd love to have you back. Click that on button, show your support, or you can check us out at Buy Me a Coffee. Black, black, black. Backslash. Black oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Buy me a coffee. Backslash. Backslash. That's buy me a coffee. Backslash. The music. I said, buy me a coffee. Backslash. The music. I am focused. Yeah, 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 yeah.